You've probably seen all the stuff online on starting a business or making money on the internet. There's a ton of noise out there. And there's also some great business and leadership practices that are emerging from today's entrepreneurs, ideas we should all be paying attention to as leaders. On this episode, the ideas leaders should consider stealing from today's top entrepreneurs. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 318. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show gives you access to the practical wisdom that will empower you to become a better leader. I'm so glad you've joined in today because today a conversation, uh, one that may not be apparent to most leaders, which is thinking about how to be more entrepreneurial. Now, um, most of our listening audience are not entrepreneurs, and yet you've inevitably heard about all of the uh, innovative things that a lot of entrepreneurs and people running businesses are doing these days, and more and more people looking at their careers differently. And even if that's not you, there is so much to be learned from what entrepreneurs are doing, how to be more entrepreneurial within your organization. And whether you ever take on the mantle of an entrepreneur or not, there are so many valuable lessons that all of us can gain from. And I find again and again and again uh, in our conversations in the academy that people who are thinking more entrepreneurial are doing some really innovative things. And so today, I am really thrilled to be able to welcome uh, an expert in entrepreneurship and someone who has been doing a ton of research over the last several years um, on some of the best lessons from entrepreneurs. And uh, we're here today to steal as many of those top lessons as we can. I'm really glad to welcome back to the show, Dory Clark. Dory is a marketing strategy consultant, professional speaker, and she's also a frequent contributor to the Harvard Business Review. She's been recognized as a branding expert by the Associated Press, Fortune, and Inc. Magazine, and she's the author of the new book, Entrepreneurial You, and her prior books, Reinventing You and Stand Out. Stand Out was named as the number one leadership book of 2015 by Inc. Magazine and one of the top 10 business books of the year by Forbes. It was also the topic of our last conversation when Dory was last on the show on episode 189. Dory, welcome back to Coaching for Leaders. Dave, I'm so glad to be back. Thanks for having me. Oh, the pleasure's mine. I was really excited to see you launching another book and even more wisdom for those of us, certainly who are entrepreneurs. But I think the, the bigger conversation for us today is just what we can learn from what entrepreneurs are doing out in the world. And there, there's so many neat things that I think are so relevant for every leader. I, before we get into that, though, I, I want to ask you a little bit more just about your background. One of the things I was picking up reading through the book that I didn't appreciate before was part of your journey. And I, in particular, I was interested in what happened around September 11th for you and your career. Yeah. Thank you, Dave. My career definitely took a took a turn, not as a result of, of September 11th, but sort of strangely timed around it. I was in my first job out of graduate school, which was being a political reporter at a newspaper. And I, it was 2001, obviously. I had uh, I'd just been on the job for, for a year. 
And it, one of the things that I, I think that we forget retrospectively because we've been subjected to so many years of hearing about news from job cuts, you know, it sort of seems like it was always that way, like, oh, journalism is so precarious. But the truth was, things change fast. And the year 2000 was actually the best year in history for newspaper revenues. Newspapers were flush. Things were, were going great, but things did change. And so in 2001, I was part, it turns out, of the, the first wave of layoffs. And so I walked into the HR office completely oblivious. I had no idea you know, what come to the HR office meant. And uh, I walked out without a job. And that's depressing enough when it's when it's your first job and, and you're just getting started. But I figured, okay, you know, tomorrow I'll wake up and I'll just start looking for another job. And of course, the, the next day I did wake up. It, it was, I'd been laid off on Monday, September 10th, 2001. Oh, wow. And uh, that next day, I was not looking for a newspaper job. That was the least of anyone's problems that day. And it really hammered home for me how things that we think are solid can sometimes be a little bit precarious and how it is a, a good idea for, for all of us in our careers to emphasize, perhaps even overemphasize flexibility and adaptability because certainly I, I hope that other people don't have to deal with, with being laid off, but regardless of whatever your professional circumstances are, uh, industries change quickly, jobs change quickly, the things that you're required to do. And so being able to be flexible and have a lot of tools in your toolkit can be enormously valuable for you. And that's, in many ways, uh, lesson one of entrepreneurship. The statistics are just astounding. Uh, I'm sure you've seen them too, of how many different jobs and even careers so many of us have uh, through our lifetimes nowadays. That certainly wasn't true a generation ago for most of our parents. And one of the things that really struck me early in the book that you wrote is you say, if we're not entrepreneurs already, we all need to start thinking that way. Even if you're perfectly happy with your day job now, consider an entrepreneurship as an insurance policy for your career. Tell me more about that. Yeah, absolutely. So to your point, first of all, statistics are beginning to show that that there is a rising trend toward people working for themselves. Currently, the number is about 35% of the American workforce is actually freelance or, or contract based. And all of the projections show that that is going to be increasing over the years. One of the more influential studies by, by Intuit, the, the software firm showed that by 2020, 40% of the American workforce is expected to be freelance. Now, a lot of those people might not even think of themselves as entrepreneurs. They, they're just, you know, oh, well, I'm, I'm on a contract or, or something like that. But the, the truth is, if we are in that role, we need to begin orienting ourselves to realize, okay, this, this engagement might not last forever. And so we want to be positioning ourselves so that we can continue to build our brands, to get known, to make, make connections so that we can hopefully be working up to, to bigger and better things. But even for folks that have a full-time day job, love what they're doing, don't want to do anything different, thinking entrepreneurially, and even beginning to, to maybe create another income stream on the side for yourself, I would argue is a valuable thing to begin to do. A, it certainly gives you more security, just kind of an insurance policy on the side. One of the people that I profiled in Entrepreneurial U is a guy named Pat Flynn, who's now a very well-known podcaster. He worked at an architecture firm, was laid off in 2008 in the midst of the recession, but was actually 
able to be okay. And the only reason he was able to be okay was that he had started a side business a little earlier that year publishing an ebook. And it turned out that that had become popular enough. He was actually making more from the ebook than he was from the architecture job. So he realized, you know what? It's okay. I can, I can focus on this. So security is one advantage. But the other is that thinking about creating a, a, a side venture, you know, whether it's just coaching people on the side or, or making an ebook, whatever it is, it also helps you expand your skills nights and weekends. And you can bring those back to work. It actually makes you even more valuable at work. And in Entrepreneurial U, I, I tell the story of a, a number of folks who have done that, who've actually gotten promoted on the strength of stuff that they first started doing on the side on their own time. This is striking me as so relevant, not only for me, but for so many others. Is the It's how my story started with Coaching for Leaders. It was one of the reasons I started the show was thinking our industry was going to change and the professional work I was doing. And so just thinking of like, how can I broaden my own portfolio? But what's been interesting is one of the biggest benefits that's come out of it is actually being more valuable to the employer and to the clients I was already established and working with at the time because of the work that I was doing in addition to. And and, and my sense is, Dory, this has really changed that 10, 15 years ago, uh, maybe even five years ago, that if you were doing something else, you were involved in another project or activity that, that was frowned upon in a lot of industries and organizations. And today, it seems like uh, not everywhere, but in a lot of places that it's almost the opposite that if you're if you're involved in another project that that's an opportunity to to grow and it, you're sh- you're showing your professional development uh, it, it, do you get that sense in having talked to people and done, doing your research too yeah absolutely dave i mean certainly you're right there there are still some kind of more retrograde bosses i guess who it would feel threatened by having somebody do something else besides their day job. But more and more forward-thinking leaders actually are seeing it as a, a positive sign and a positive indicator if the folks who work for them are starting entrepreneurial side income streams. And I'll give you one great example that I actually share in Entrepreneurial U. There's a guy that I profile named Lenny Achan, and he started his career as a nurse And he ended up as being the head of communications for his entire hospital system, which is a pretty unlikely uh, career shift. I mean, that's not at all the normal route. But the way that he was able to do that was that his he got interested in in tech and startups that kind of thing. And he decided on his own time with his own money that he would create a couple of apps and put them up for sale in, in the iTunes store. And so he did it. And eventually, of course, you know, he did it kind of quietly, but eventually, of course, his boss heard about it and found out. And Lenny was really worried at first that he would get punished, that the boss would accuse him of, of you know, doing it on company time or that there was some policy. But it's actually the opposite. When his boss found out, called him into his office and said, Lenny, I hear you've been doing, you know, these apps on the side. And, and Lenny said, well, yeah, it's true. And the boss said, I need someone to run social media for the hospital. Will you do it? And he picked Lenny because he saw the initiative. He saw that he was a self-starter and that Lenny was not only conversant in that world, but had actually t- taken his own time to do it. And so Lenny got that job and eventually did such a good job, he was promoted to run all communications for the hospital. So it really, it's a way of making new opportunities for yourself. 
And I think the lesson for us as leaders, too, is not to just immediately have that sense of fear or concern when someone is doing something you know, outside of the standard workplace and outside of their standard career, but potentially to see that as an opportunity. And and of course, there's there's limits and there's guidelines for all of that uh, for, for all of us. I mean, you know, we're not saying people shouldn't, shouldn't be doing their work or meeting their job expectations, of course, but that, there's an opportunity to have a dialogue there and actually make something better. And I, I've seen several examples of that happening too. And one thing I'm curious about from a from a lessons learned standpoint of some of the ideas we can we can steal for some of these entrepreneurs is uh, the thing that I have seen a lot of and and you talk about in the book too is the willingness to talk about and to learn from failure and I sense that in a lot of organizations especially a lot of traditional organizations we're not doing that as much as we need to. Yeah, that's that's a hundred percent true. I mean, certainly one of one of the challenges always in in the corporate world is that there's a pressure to kind of save face you know in 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 a world of of competitive office politics that kind of stuff you don't want to be the one guy who's saying oh yeah i totally failed here because if it's like playing chicken if everybody else is covering up their failure and being like oh well you know i don't know about dave but i was successful let me tell you then you know it, it puts you in a position of of perceived weakness as compared to to these other people who are thumping their chests, and that's been the status quo for a really long time. But of course, we all know the adverse consequences that come from that, namely that people make the same mistakes all the time because no one's ever able to learn from the mistakes. We just have to keep repeating them like we're on some infinite loop, and. What entrepreneurship has really opened up in a lot of ways is more of the dialogue around failure and recognizing that instead of looking weak when we say, hey, something failed, we actually begin to look even stronger because people know, they intuit that it takes a high level of confidence and self-assurance to be willing to go there and to be willing to, to say, hey, here's, here's the situation, here's what we learned from it. I think there's also an interesting corollary, an important corollary that goes with it, which is that the real mantra in the world of entrepreneurship these days is about little bets, quote unquote, or, or a minimum viable product. And this, I'll explain this in a second, but this is a really important concept because the truth is, if the failure that you experience is, is a devastating you know, just lose everything failure, it's going to be hard to escape from that no matter what. But increasingly, there's a view in Silicon Valley that I think is useful in all of life, that before you go all in on something, anything, you need to test it. You need to do a small test first, see how it goes. And then if the results are positive, do more of that. And I, I think we have more, more and more of the ability to do that now since, you know, with the internet, we, we actually can reach customers directly and do small tests and experiment. Whereas before it was just harder structurally to, to manage that. But so if you are making little bets and testing them, it enables you to say, you know what? I did a pilot. The pilot didn't work. But you know what? That's okay. We, we knew it might not work. We spent, you know, five grand on it. So what? You know, it's not like we, we wasted $50 million. We learned something from this experiment. We're going to experiment again, and we're going to keep experimenting until we find something that works and double down on it. And that's actually a way to be smarter about everything that we do. 
this is probably the single biggest idea for me, what you just said, that has changed my mindset over the last five to six years and um, helped me and, and helped others to get momentum and get traction. Our audience has heard me talk about momentum a lot, but it's that. It's not trying to spend six months or a year planning something out and um, putting together all the architecture for a program or a project before testing something a little bit and getting feedback from whoever the user is going to be, whether it's someone internal or whether it's a customer, and figuring out if it makes sense to continue and having uh, you know dialogue about it. And for for it seems like so many people that's really a game changer when they embrace that Dory and and particularly from a leadership standpoint we spent we spent a ton of time in the academy talking about making small tweaks and changes consistently in order to do what you just said which is test and to try things out versus ended up having to have a massive failure happen 12, 18 months later that like you said is is a lot more uncomfortable to to uh, and a lot harder to recover from. Absolutely. Yeah. One of the other things that you have articulated too that's really helpful for us to think of, and, and even if we're not in a very small firm or as an entrepreneur, of being able to start thinking a little more broadly about um, is having multiple revenue streams. And at, you know, every organization relies on revenue to some to some extent, and most organizations to a big extent. We're, what are you seeing that entrepreneurs are doing that has really been innovative on this? Well, I think the key here, Dave, when it comes to multiple revenue streams is the first question that people often ask is they say, well, great, sure, you know, I I can intellectually understand that if you have multiple revenue streams, you are mitigating risk, right? But isn't it pulling you in too many directions? Isn't it just weakening your efforts because you're having to do so many different things? And the the answer there, I think what I think is really the key is that it's not about having multiple revenue streams that are doing wildly different things. This is not a matter of, oh, you should, you should sell dog food and you should do, you know, uh, create, create uh, ski resorts. And then you should also be a lawyer and you should also be a yoga instructor. You know, it's, it's, it's all, those would be absolutely pulling you in too many different directions because they're different types of things. They're different audiences. What we really want to do to harness the maximum value of multiple income streams without tearing ourselves apart is to focus on the audience that we're serving and ask yourself, all right, I've already got these people in my orbit. What else could I be doing? How do I take advantage of the low-hanging fruit in this situation? And so if you know your customers really well, or you know the people that that are around you, then you begin to see those opportunities. Maybe you have just been doing management consulting for an organization. Great. Okay. Well, it turns out that as a result of doing this consulting, you've gotten to know the individual executives a lot. Some of those people are probably, they probably like you. They probably trust you. It would not be that hard for you to start doing executive coaching for those people. It's a completely different revenue stream. It's B, you know, B2C instead of B2B, or you, know, you could even have the, the company pay for it. But it's just a different way of monetizing, a different way of adding value to an orbit that you're already comfortable in. And so beginning to ask yourself those things, find, find the places where you can just expand out a little bit from what you're doing, can really open up 
big pockets of new revenue for you. Who have you seen that's really been innovative on how they've thought on that? Because I, I think a lot of us get, we get in our mindset of like, here's what our firm does, or here's what our organization does. And it's really hard to get out of the mindset of, okay, well, maybe we could do something different that we don't traditionally do. Uh, who, who should we take inspiration from on this? Yeah, I mean, there, I think there's a lot. There's a lot of possibilities, right? One one easy way to begin to think about this is literally just to open your mind up when people are asking for things. This seems so incredibly basic, but I know in my own career, for instance, I actually, you know, part of why I picked that example, I started out my business doing marketing strategy consulting for companies. And when my first book, Reinventing You, was released in 2013, there was a book aimed at the, the individual executive. Uh, it's about professional reinvention. And so I started getting a lot of inquiries. Oh, do you do coaching? And I kept saying no. I kept being like, no, that's not what I do. And it, it, it took probably six or eight times of people asking me before I'm like, oh, this is kind of ridiculous. Instead of just telling them no, maybe I should just do it. You know, there's, there's no reason that I couldn't, but it was my own limited mindset that said, oh, that's not the thing that I do. So just seeing what people are already asking you for. Another example from Entrepreneurial U is a guy named Scott Oldford, who you may know. He's largely an you know, online entrepreneur. And he had this, this guy approach him and say, Scott, you know, I, I really love what, you know, all the stuff you do with online marketing. I'd like you to teach me. And Scott said, oh, you know, I, I couldn't do that. You know, I just, I run this agency. I run these programs, blah, blah, blah. And the guy said, no, no, I really want you to do it. He said, okay, I understand it might not be worth it for you just to do it for me. But what if other people wanted it too? And Scott said, well, maybe, I don't know. And the guy said, here, just can we try an experiment? Why don't you just put out an email and say, hey, I'm thinking about teaching a course on online marketing who's interested? Who would be willing to do this? And the guy said, if enough people say yes, will you actually do it? And Scott said, sure. Okay. You know, no risk there. So he puts out the email and he says that within, within a couple of days, he had more than 20 people sign up. Uh -oh. um, so sometimes just listening to what people want, uh, you know, for everyone listening here, you probably have something. It could be related to your business. It might not be related to your business that you're really good at. Maybe it's um, that you're an amazing chef and that everybody's coming to you for recipes, or you're always the one that wins the fantasy football uh, tournaments and people want your advice about who they should draft or whatever it is. But people are coming to you. And if we notice that, it begins to give us hints about what we might explore and what we might monetize. So one of the things I'm hearing you say here is pay attention. Pay attention right. to what yeah, pay attention to what people are saying. We all get these requests. I shouldn't say all of us, but a lot of us get these requests all the time from our customers, from people internally. And the tendency is to ignore them or maybe not stop and think. So pay attention to what people are asking you. And then I, I love that example of with the the email because that's that's a great it's a great example of what you were mentioning earlier of, you know, just just try something, test it. And, you know, one email, what does it, what does it cost as far as time and resources to send out one email to people? And, you know, if it hadn't worked out, like no one responded, no, no big deal. Right. But if you just start with asking and having dialogue with people and testing things, then all of a sudden you've, you've, you've got a, an indicator of like, what makes sense to spend time focusing on. Uh, okay. So an, another one that you highlight in the book is 
the ability of a lot of the top entrepreneurs to challenge key assumptions that tend to be true in their industry. And of course, we all want to be innovative. What is it that what is it the top people are doing that's different about how the rest of us are approaching it? Yeah, it's it's a really important question. And in fact, it actually ties back to a point that I explored a little bit in my most recent book, Stand Out. One of the examples that I that I shared there was uh, Robert Cialdini, who some of your listeners may know, really influential psychologist who wrote the book Influence, the Psychology of Persuasion. And he was the first person who really popularized doing psychology field experiments, meaning up to that point, and I mean, still still it, it continues, a lot of psychology experiments are kind of artificial things in a lab, you know? So it'll be like, they'll get these college students and they'll do a little experiment where blah, 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 they do this in a lab and, and you know, and then they're able to extrapolate out some uh, psychological principle about human nature. Well, you know, maybe that works, but maybe it also doesn't because it's this artificial condition in the lab. And so Robert Cialdini wondered, could we actually do field experiments? Could we do psychology experiments in the real world so that we knew for sure that they would work in the real world? And it was it was very hard for him to do this. His first experiment, it was about getting door-to-door solicitors for United Way and changing the script to see what would get people to donate more. And in order to do this, it was pretty onerous. He had to get special permission from the university. He had to get permission from the local police so that, you know, there there wasn't like people getting arrested for soliciting. They had, of course, to enlist the United Way. They had to get the volunteers who were willing to do it because it's a little more intimidating to be out in the field fundraising as, you know, where there's like dogs and mean people and whatever as compared to just sitting in a lab. He said that it took him about three times as long to be able to pull this experiment together as it would have been if he had done a quote unquote regular experiment. Mm. But it became a, a breakthrough. It was it was something that everyone talked about. And, you know, 30 years later, people still talk about because it was so groundbreaking. And for him, I think that the key, and this this is the case for any entrepreneurial thinker, is asking, okay, if something is not being done, why is it not being done? And is is that because it is impossible to do it? Is it structurally impossible? Or is it just hard? And a lot of times people are not doing things because it's kind of hard. But if you are willing to go around the barriers, you can sometimes get an exponentially different and exponentially better result. The path to mediocrity is so easy to follow, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) That's right. I'm curious, how do you, you do this for yourself, Tori, because you've—I mean—you are anything but mediocre. I mean, you've just been on this amazing rise in your business and and the books and 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 so many accolades. Uh, how do you get yourself out of the mindset of you know what's traditionally done in this industry or publishing books or speaking like you're, you're doing a lot of? And and how do you how do you challenge yourself on that? Well, you know, one of the one of the ways that I do it actually, Dave, just to just to get a little meta, is that I. I write books about things that I want to learn about and that I want to get better at. Mm. So my last two, for instance, so there's Standout, which is about how to become a recognized expert in your field. That was something I really wanted to do. That was something I really wanted to know about. Yeah. And so, and then my my new one, Entrepreneurial You, is um, 
It's basically a book about how to make money. <laughs> how, do you, how do you make money in lots of different income streams, uh, build a passive income, you know, like the, the dream, right? The, the entrepreneurial dream. How do you do that? And I figured, okay, I could try to bumble along and figure these things out for myself, but probably the best way to figure something out is to ask people who are already doing it and see what they're doing. But we all know that, you know, the most, the most annoying thing possible in the world is to have, you know, to, to just be, be yet another in the barrage of, oh, hey, Dave, can I pick your brain? You know, you just, you hear, you hear that for the, you know, 110th time and you're just like, no, don't, you know, it, it, you, you get people just wanting to extract information for the price of a coffee. And you realize that if, if that was all you were, it could be all you're doing and you wouldn't get anything done yourself. It just doesn't work. And so in writing a book, I realized it would give me an opportunity to essentially do that, to essentially ask people anything I wanted, get the, the, accurate, best, most detailed information, but they would be happy to do it because it wasn't me extracting. It was me being able to offer value to them because they get, you know, they get to be profiled in a book. I'm going to spend the next year or two of my life talking about the book, telling stories about people like Scott Oldford and Danny Eaney and um, sharing, sharing them with new audiences. And so it's, a, it's really a win-win, but, but I viewed it as a private tutorial for myself. This is such a great illustration, too, of one of the other things I've seen just with entrepreneurs that are really, really doing amazing things is they're able to hit like four or five birds with one stone. (laughs) So there's the professional development. There's the how could I turn this into a marketing opportunity? How can we turn this into a revenue stream? How does this leverage relationships I'm building? And it seems to me like the people are really intentional about doing these things. Uh, find a way to help themselves and their organizations really leverage it in so many different ways, and uh, and it's just it, it, if you can do that, you're you're just a step ahead of where a lot of other leaders and organizations are thinking on strategy. And I, I want to ask you about one other one. You you mentioned the book Intermediate Metrics. We you know we all hear in business and 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 certainly tracking success about the importance of metrics. Uh, what's the difference between just metrics generally and and intermediate metrics? Well, I think an issue that a lot of leaders face is that, you know, I mean, a of course, some some people don't you know don't even really plan or set metrics at all. It's just like, oh, we're we're just going to be huge, and like, <laughs> we're going to be number one. That? We're going to be number yeah. one in everything. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, that's that's not too helpful. But you know, the next level is okay. Well, you know, m- most good leaders know that they need to set some metrics, right? So they say, okay. Well, by next year, we're going to have 10,000 units sold. And so that's a great goal. That's fantastic. But the, the problem is that sometimes it, it takes a while to get traction. And so if your only metric is we're going to sell 10,000 by next year, if it gets to be month two, maybe you haven't sold that many. Okay, that's fine. You know, we've got plenty of time. Month six, you haven't sold that many. Hmm. Well, what's going on here? Month month nine, you haven't sold that many. What's what's happening? Should you be concerned or should you not be concerned? Is the project failing or is the project actually on pace, but it's an exponential growth process rather than a, a linear growth? 
and all all of the the traction that you've been building has been a little bit invisible, but it's going to explode in month 10. It's really hard to tell if you don't know what your intermediate metrics should be. You know, what what do you look at in between now and next year or in between now and five years from now? And so similarly, in the world of entrepreneurship, of course, there is a huge difference between like, okay, I'm just starting out and now I'm the next Oprah. <laughs> and, and the visions that most people have in their head is like, well, I won't be successful until I'm Oprah. Well, guess what? That's going to take a while, if ever. And if that is your frame, odds are you're going to give up because at a certain point you're like, oh, I'm not going to be Oprah. I'm never going to be Oprah. And you quit. And so one of the best things you can do, and this is really a point that I drive home in Entrepreneurial U, is to focus on what I call intermediate metrics. And, and that is really understanding in detail, trying to set out and understand from talking to other people, from doing research, what are the milestones along the way to the ultimate destination so that you can understand, am I moving in the right direction? You know, because for instance, let's say your goal is to make six figures from your entrepreneurial venture. That might take a while. You don't know if you're successful or not, but there are, there are these sort of metrics that show that you're heading in the right direction. So maybe you start to get retweeted by influencers that, that you respect. That is a sign that people are paying attention. Those are positive indicators that say, don't quit now. Keep moving forward. You are on pace. And most of those, my experience has been, is that if you actually sit down and look at it from a strategic standpoint, are predictable. Right. You know, yeah. we, we can look at so many different industries and new products and new services that companies offer. And, and there's a life cycle to every product and service. And you have a sense of kind of what time frame there is. And so if you're willing to do that, I think that's that's the that's the call to action for me, Dory, is like thinking about this, like my willingness to as a leader sit down and think through like, OK, I know what the long term timeline is, but what are we focused on this week, this month? maybe even this quarter to see results on. And if we're seeing results there, we know we're on track. And it keeps the motivation level going too, of course. And if we're not, then you know maybe we make a small tweak or a small change now versus waiting nine or 10 months until we've lost all the time and the momentum. We can't really do anything different then. That's, that's exactly right. It's about your... Your early warning systems, and it's about keeping yourself motivated when when you see progress, because it might not always come in the form that you're expecting. It might not, you know, it's it's not if you if you want to sell ten thousand units, it's not always oh well, I send I sell a thousand this month and two thousand the next month. Sometimes it's stop and start, and so you've got to really analyze what are what's the overall signs and how can you how can you read those tea leaves better if you get better at that as a leader that is an invaluable skill oh for sure i i find this even so helpful on things like i mean this may seem trite as compared to what you just mentioned but just planning a week like yeah what am i going to get done this week and when i plan out the week and i plan for uh, you know i mean the tendency is a lot of times like if you have a busy week like i got nothing done this week well if you plan in advance to know you're not going to get anything done other than whatever all these meetings are scheduled, then it's not a big deal. But otherwise, you get to the end of the week, and you're like, oh my gosh, I didn't get anything done. And it's so demotivating. But setting that expectation, we keep coming back to expectations in this conversation, setting that expectation in advance, even for yourself, is really huge. 
Is you mentioned early warning system, uh, early warning alerts uh, a minute ago. Uh, one of the things you've got on your website is a self-assessment for some of the things we've been talking about and just getting a sense of where you are. When, when people take that, what are they going to learn about how to frame this and how to do some thinking on this? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, so what you're referring to, Dave, is the 88-question entrepreneurial you self-assessment. And it's basically a series of questions that walks you through thinking about how to create multiple revenue streams in your business. And this could apply to you as a corporate leader. You could certainly uh, apply this to your business entity. You could also think about it for, for your own self and your own life if you're interested in creating an entrepreneurial side stream. But Really, the you know the key point is kind of getting back to what we were talking about earlier. How do you diversify, but do so in a way that doesn't pull you in a million directions, but instead is enabling you to tap into new revenue, new low-hanging fruit that you maybe just haven't been exploiting properly yet. I love it. So we're going to get a link to that in the weekly leadership guide for those of you who'd like to take that assessment. Dory, do you know the link off the top of your head or do, should I put it in the show notes? I sure do, Dave. Yeah. If people would like to get it, again, you can download it for free. It's doryclark.com slash entrepreneur. Well, that's easy. Cool. Hey, Dory, thank you so much for helping us uh, steal some of the ideas that the top entrepreneurs are doing. I really appreciate it. And uh, thanks for all the work you're doing on helping uh, people think uh, so strategically on this and uh, leverage so many of this, so much of this wisdom that entrepreneurs are teaching us these days. Dave, it's great to talk with you. Thank you. Dory Clark is the author of the new book, Entrepreneurial You. Check it out where you buy books. You've heard from Dory some of the top lessons from entrepreneurs that we should be stealing. And I also would encourage you to steal some of the top lessons from the leadership experts that have been on this show over the last six years. If you would like to get access to my free 10-day audio course titled 10 Ways to Empower the People You Lead, it will give you access to some of the best lessons you've heard here on Coaching for Leaders over the last six years, especially helpful to those of you who have just started listening recently to the podcast. And if you are listening recently, or maybe the first time, thank you so much for tuning in. If you'll give me 10 minutes a day for 10 days, that audio course will give you the most immediate practical actions to become a better leader and get up to speed on many of the conversations we've been having here on Coaching for Leaders. You can activate your free membership that'll give you access to that right at coachingforleaders.com, plus a whole bunch of other resources that are on the free membership portal. So again, you can uh, register for that. Just go to coachingforleaders.com. Now, several episodes that are related to today's conversation back on episode number 189, Dory Clark was on the show back then as well, talking about how to stand out. In one of her previous books, she reviewed some of the key things that the best thinkers have done out there in order to really create wonderful ideas. I've referred so many people to that episode, especially folks who are considering new ideas. It is a fabulous framework for doing that. Check that out, episode 189. Also, episode 238. Speaking of lessons from entrepreneurs, Adam Grant was on the show talking about how to be a nonconformist. It was a conversation about his most recent book, Originals. And he looked at the research around entrepreneurs, and it turns out that a lot of the things we think about, about successful entrepreneurs, 
are not the things that are really true. It's really, really different than what I think most of us anticipate. We go into great detail in that on episode 238. Check that out. And finally, episode 292, Teresa Shaheen was on the show talking about how to solve a really big problem. She talked about how uh, they are using social entrepreneurship in her work and with nonprofits. Episode 292 is a great resource for that. You can reach any of those past episodes by going to coachingforleaders.com slash the episode number. See you next week for our next episode. Take care.